morning, and it uh, seems that the message still has to filter through, uh, but uh, we will make a start by opening in prayer, please. Merciful and gracious God, glorious art thou and merciful. And we come before thee in the name of thy Son and give thee thanks for drawing us into thy house this morning, Lord, to make good use of this market day for the soul, that, Lord, that we may enter into thy presence, that we may learn of Christ, that we may sit under the preaching, that we may enjoy the sacraments of the Lord's table, that we may hear afar of, of thy work in building thy church, even there in Mexico City and elsewhere. O oh God, we do give thee thanks for this thy day. We pray, O oh Lord, that it may please thee to, to touch our hearts, to grant us thy spirit. Lord, that we would hear, that we would feed, that we would be filled, that we would be satisfied, that we'd have a fresh look upon the Savior. And so, Lord, we do pray, forgive our sins uh, and bless our time together with thy word, even now at this adult Bible class. Remember the children of the Sabbath school in the basement. We do pray, Lord, that thou be pleased to bless them, to grant them a, a listening ear and an opened heart. And, Lord, that thou would be pleased to bless it to them, uh, not just for their memory's sake or for the improvement of knowledge, but that they may uh, look and learn and live and looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would be an eternal blessing. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open up your copies of the Lord's Word to Luke, to the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we'll just read together the first four verses. Welcome. So with Seattle Bible class, we're going to read from Luke chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4. First four verses of Luke chapter 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Amen. So we have now for uh, uh, quite a while uh, been going through the shorter catechism and question by question and sometimes spending uh, more than one uh, adult Bible class on one particular question and sometimes there's more information to be drawn in. But I thought we were about halfway through the shorter catechism and I thought it would be a good idea to have a, an understanding what is the background to this Shorter Catechism, why this Shorter Catechism, because it has a very interesting, uh, a very wonderful background uh, to it, uh, without being too, too labored in, in what we were doing. So I would 
intending to give this on the last adult Bible class in, uh, I think, the end of June, uh, of uh, just gone. Uh, but uh, everyone thought that the adult Bible class had stopped the week before, so I just had the Sabbath school in, and so I gave a sort of a, a children's version of it. But now I've got the chance to, uh, to open it up a little bit more and consider how, how do we get this, this catechism, this, this teaching aid, well, it has, it has a, a number of uh, uh, things in the, uh, that are to do with, that are of interest to do with its origin, to do with its development, and there's a historical background to begin with, and let's not, uh, let's not get too, uh, too uh, bogged down in details by any means. But we've just read um, Luke and the first four verses, because when Luke, Dr. Luke, when he writes to uh, Theophilus, he, he, he finishes that introduction to his gospel account by saying in verse 4, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now that word that's translated as instructed is the Greek word to catechize. You've been catechized in this. Uh, catechize just means to instruct and to teach, teach in a systematic or a detailed manner as it's come to be. And if anything more so, it's come to be a way of teaching with a question and answer. Uh, although that's not strictly uh, uh, what it originally means, but it's what it's become to be. And so Theophilus then, he was what we call a catechumen. He was a, a novitiate. He'd come into the church, he had heard the preaching, and he, uh, he had come to faith. And so they would instruct him before he was, and no doubt he'd been baptized, and then they would instruct him as a novitiate before he was allowed into membership and then to the Lord's uh, table. And so catechizing, as we know, even from, the, uh, even from the early church, but especially from the time of the Reformation, has been a way of instructing people in, in the principles and the truths uh, of the Christian religion, uh, Martin Luther, um, was uh, one of the first reformers to, to write a, a catechism. And what was the need of the catechism? Well, they needed to teach the, 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 the poor benighted people of Europe what the truth was. They'd been, they'd been steeped in the darkness, the medieval darkness of Romanism for centuries. And so they didn't really even understand what the gospel was. They weren't even too sure uh, the, the place of Christ. And, and certainly they did not understand uh, Mary's rightful place. And so we have uh, Mart, uh, Martin Luther's small catechism that he wrote, and of course that would have a, a Lutheran tint to it. Uh, and shortly after that, we have the famous Heidelberg Catechism, and that's been adopted by the Continental Reformed. But let's just consider this, this background to the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter uh, Catechism. And it has an historical background with Charles I. Charles I, the son of James I. We talk about the King James Version. Uh, well, it, his son, Charles I, uh, became king in 1625. And although he was brought up a Presbyterian, he, he hated Presbyterians. He was no friend of Presbyterianism, and I would suggest he was no, refend, no friend uh, of, of the gospel at all. And just like his father James, like all the Stuarts actually, uh, they were obsessed with the divine right of kings. They, they, they would consider that I, I would, they were a king and then therefore they had all these rights and it was God-given and therefore no one could take it away from them and nobody could question them. Which unfortunately made him power-hungry and arrogant. And he preferred the English church system better because in the English church system, in the Anglican church, the king was the head of the church. Uh, the king could then appoint 
um, bishops. He, 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 he set up the hierarchy, as it were, and he could, he, could, he, could, he could have people put off from their position. He could have new people put in uh, pretty well whenever he felt like it. And so he would have all control. And so that was the system that he wanted to enforce upon the Scots. And the Scots, of course, had the Kirk of Scotland being a, a Presbyterian uh, system. So he wanted bishops in there, he wanted prayer books, he wanted to be able to control the liturgy, he wanted all this power that he thought he had by divine, divine right. And so he was, he was at work um, to turn the Church of Scotland essentially into an extension of the Church of England with himself as chief and head. And so that was 1625. In 1630, though there's a very wonderful uh, thing that happened, in 1630, in a place halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow, there's a place called uh, Shots, and the church there, the Kirk of Shots, it was holding its communion season, so they have a communion season twice or four times a year. And so there'll be many people there, not just the people of the congregation, but neighboring congregations, uh, neighboring ministers, and even people might come from afar. Now, the minister there had been a man who had spent much time on his knees looking for the Lord to, uh, to revive uh, his own work and to revive the congregation and just send a true revival. And what happened in that, communi uh, that communion season was that the, the Lord came in great power and evidence uh, and there was great conviction of sin and there was a true revival that broke out. And it appears that that, that spiritual revival and, and, that, and that gospel boldness didn't just remain in the Kirk of Shots there in, 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 in the center of the lowlands of Scotland, but that it spread further afield because we have the incident uh, that happened in 1637. Just seven years later, we have the introduction of King Charles's prayer book. And the prayer book had fixed prayers. It wasn't for the minister uh, to, to pray freely and openly and, 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 and to give free application uh, taken from the word or, or the circumstances of the church. No, the, the, these prayers were written down, they were formulated and you had to follow them. You had to follow that liturgy that was in the prayer book. And there was a lot about it that just tasted to the Presbyterian as Romish. And so therefore in 1637 they're trying to introduce it in Edinburgh in St. Giles Cathedral. And the, the dean of the cathedral, he was in the pulpit and he, he, he opened up the prayer book and he, he was starting to read it for the first time. And in the middle of the people, and of course there weren't full pews in, in, in St. Giles Cathedral in those days, as large, open as, as were the churches in those days. And you could lean against a pillar, you could, you could sit on the floor, you could bring your own stool with you, you could sit in a, in a windowsill if you could, if you could reach it. And so she was just sitting on her stool, and as soon as he started opening up and started reading, so reading the prayers and, and reading the, the blessings and reading everything, um, this, this woman called Jenny Geddes, and I think you know uh, the story already, but Jenny Geddes, she stood up, she picked up a stool, and she shouted at him, uh, Villain, dost thou say mass at my lug? You know, are you sp saying the, the, the Catholic mass in my ear, in my hearing? And she got the stool and she threw it at him. And then, uh, and I was going to say all hell broke loose. It didn't. All, all, all wonderful things broke loose because people realized that they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, they took her example. They were not going to be oppressed by this Romish Anglican uh, prayer book. 
and many people started shouting and more people throw st threw stools before they left the building. It won't surprise you that next week that Dean Hannay sat in the pulpit once again, but this time he had a pistol in his hand, so he was prepared for uh, worse things. But what happened then is when that happened and, and there was a rebellion against this, this, uh, this oppression of, 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 of Christ's gospel church in, in Scotland, is that the Presbyterians were getting a bad name and they were facing accusations of treason, they were facing accusations of, not be, of being disloyal, um, because they were continuing their protests against bishops being put in of the prayer book and, and other, other matters that were being brought in quite quickly by the king without any, without any explanation really, without any discourse, without any questioning. And so what they thought they had to do to protect their own name is, is to form a national covenant. And so this is in 1638 then, so the year after Jenny Geddes, eight years after the revival at the Kirk of Schotts. And the national covenant was something that they, that they formulated and they signed it, all the ministers, but also congregants and everybody who wanted to prove, yeah, we're Protestants, but we're also loyal to the king. More especially, first of all, we're loyal to King Jesus, but we're also loyal to the king that he has put over us. And so the National Covenant, it pledged um, to defend the true religion, especially against the innovations that were being brought in, everything that was against the Bible and the teaching of the Reformers, and anything that would lead to something that it would even hint at Roman Catholicism. And that the desire of the covenant was to maintain, and I quote, the true worship of God, the majesty of our king, and the peace of the kingdom. And the, so that there would be peace in the realm, and there would be uh, true uh, obedience, there would be goodness and obedience to the king, but only insofar as he did not tread on the toes of King Jesus' rights. And they said that they would live lives that were in covenant with God. So this was a covenant, this national covenant wasn't with the king. It was with God. It was, an, it was a, a personal uh, subscribing to this national covenant of, 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 of the Kirk of Scotland, of the people of Scotland with God. And that was signed in Edinburgh in February of 1638. And that brings us then to um, Charles's um, machinations there down in England because he would continue, of course, and he wasn't making many friends not only north of the border but south of the border as well where he had uh, the Parliament and the Parliament uh, consisting of an awful, lot of, um, an awful lot of Presbyterians and Congregationalists as well as Reformed Anglicans. And, and he was having problems with them because he was spending money as if it was going out of fashion. And it was their money. It was the realm's money. And he was spending it on... Uh, and it wasn't just the fact of money, but it was also his desire to control the church and all these other matters. And so it led to the fact that in, 16, uh, in the early 1640s that a civil war began, a civil war between the parliamentarians and those who, the royalists, those that followed uh, Charles I. And so they were having this uh, battle the various battles, having this war, uh, starting in, in 1642. But the king had made a number of successes, a number of defeats against the parliamentarians, and so the English parliament started to look to Scotland, and they, they, they wanted a military union with the Scots. 
But the Scots did not want a military union. They wanted a religious union. They wanted the Anglican Church to be reformed, and then they would come in and help in some way. They saw the Church of England as, as barely half reformed, and, and they wanted both England and Ireland, and Ireland was being uh, ruled by, by the English king as well, for them to become as reformed as the Church of Scotland in belief, in worship, practice, in all these uh, matters. But the English were not interested in initially. Uh, and the Scottish minister, Robert Bailey, he wrote, he says, the English were for a civil league, but we were for a religious covenant. And hence why they made a solemn league and covenant. So both sides got their way into some degree. So the Scots agreed if they would reform the Church of England and the Church of Ireland, um, that they would come and give military help and have that league and covenant uh, with them. And therefore to protect the Reformation in Scotland and established true reformation in the whole of the British Isles. And as a result then of the covenant, uh, the, the Westminster Assembly had been set up already. It was already there uh, before this Solemn League and Covenant, and they were initially set up to, to revise the Articles of Faith of the, um, of the uh, Church of England. So that it was already there, but then this League and Covenant is signed, then the Scots send down some ministers and elders down to the assembly, and then we get into more the ecclesiastical background. So we've had the historical background, but now we have the, the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical background, because they were trying to revise these 39 articles, and the 39 articles are not very big, they tend to be just paragraphs, um, so quite short documents, and they gave up reforming it because they realized with the Solemn League and Covenant, the whole of the church needed reform. It didn't just need tinkering with, it just didn't need just resetting a little place here and there. It needed to be wiped off the table and need to be completely rewritten. And so the assembly was working away on, on a new catechism. Uh, they'd been working away on it, and, 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 and the catechism just was getting bigger and bigger, and the questions and the answers were getting bigger and bigger, and they realized at one point that they need to just split it into two. They would make a, a simpler version and they'd have a larger version. So they'd have the larger catechism was for ministers to, uh, to be taught from and to teach from the pulpit. And the shorter one, well, that would be essentially for, for children. And so that's what they did. They made a shorter catechism, a larger catechism. And of course, in the course of the years, the shorter catechism has become a firm favorite because there is so much uh, truth um, in, in simple, short question and answer uh, form, most of the answers are fairly brief. Now they send it to Parliament because Parliament wanted to see the results of their work and Parliament in London uh, was not happy with what they'd made when they'd seen the catechism. They said, it's fine that you say all this, but where is it in the scriptures? So the Parliament sent it back and said, give us scripture proofs. Give us scripture proofs for everything that you've got written in those catechisms. If only we had parliaments like that today that took such an interest in the religious well-being uh, of its own people. And so we have the, we have the, we have the 39 articles. That they, they, they were moved away. They were, they were done away with and replaced by the shorter and the larger uh, catechism. There's other things that we could say uh, about that matter. 
And the, Ang and the English Catechism, uh, which was in the Book of Prayer, again, it was a few, uh, a few pages long, th maybe three pages long, the Catechism. Uh, nowadays it's four pages long, so it's not a very large Catechism. But they would also have the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. And the, all of that sort of, that encompassed the, the very basis uh, of what the, even the early Reformers like Luther and Calvin, they thought that this is the minimum that you need to know to understand. But the catechism that was already in, besides the 39 articles, the, the catechism of the Anglican Church was not very evangelical. It was not very reformed at all, and it was just found to be so lacking in the very basics. So the 39 articles, the Confession of Faith, was, was replaced by the Westminster Confession of Faith and its 33 chapters. And then we have the, the Anglican Catechism, a very simple document replaced by the larger and the shorter catechism. So there, there was that great, that great need uh, for a fully reformed catechism. So in the years 1643 to 1647, they were busy with these three, three documents, uh, one confessional and two teaching, which we would say would today would call the Westminster Standards or the majority of the Westminster Standards and the need for uh, a fully reformed uh, teaching and confession. So that's what, that's what was done uh, with the Lord's uh, help and movement. So you had the historical background, the, the ecclesiastical uh, background, but what about the theological contents of uh, this catechism? Now, if you know anything about the Heidelberg Catechism, and I know one or two have a, a Dutch reformed background, now they're, they're in, con in contrast to the shorter catechism, which has 107 questions and answers, the Heidelberg has 129. And in many ways, the Heidelberg is more, you could compare it better with the larger catechism than with the shorter. But this Heidelberg is split up into three sections. Uh, and question two uh, declares, uh, sa says this, well, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort, may us live and die happily, talking about the comfort of Christ's salvation. Uh, how many things are necessary to know? And then the answer is three. There are three things according to the Heidelberg. The first, how great my sins and misery are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And the third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. So we have misery, deliverance, and thankfulness, and that's, that's how the Heidelberg was, was, was split up. And, and those truths are also found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but they're more interwoven. The actual catechism, our catechism, is actually split up into, into two main sections. So two main sections, and as you know, the, the first question of the, of the, of the catechism is quite a, quite a uh, highly existential uh, even metaphysical, uh, you know, why do I exist? What is the chief end of man? A man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And besides question two telling us where we can, we, we find this information uh, being in the scriptures, question three gives us this division that we have in the catechism into two main parts. What do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Belief and duty. Again, that's not too far off from misery, deliverance, and, and thankfulness, thankfulness being in the duty. And so we have those two, two, two main sections, then belief 
what is what is what is to be believed and questions 4 to 12 of the catechism they, they tell us something of God as creator and his glories of his power the fact that God has decreed all things in question 7 uh, that God um, that he has created all things when we can see his work and his power through creation and through providence it opens up a little bit of what providence is uh, but it is sort of describing who is this God that we are to glory in and to enjoy forever. Again, in brief questions, just so we have an understanding, who is the true Jehovah God as he's revealed in the scriptures? And it begins off with how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, etc. So we're understanding that we're, to, we're dealing with the triune Jehovah, who is the creator of all things, who created all things out of nothing, etc. And that is the basics, is the bedrock of understanding a true religion that we're dealing with the true God and then it moves on very quickly on to gospel matters from question 13 question 13 to question 20 to deal with various matters of, of sin uh, dealing with the original sin uh, what, what sin is a definition of sin and the fallen state of man's nature bringing us all the way into question 20 to understand that we, we cannot save ourselves uh, by any means and therefore question 21 opens up with that glorious question who is the redeemer of God's elect and the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ and so it continues uh, opening up who the Lord is who the redeemer is and what his work is and what his offices are of office of of prophet priest uh, and king and and who he was in the uh, in his offices that he was greatly humiliated but having done that work he's greatly exalted and and through all who christ is as redeemer as being the god man and all that he has done and then 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 we examine something of the benefits the blessings the glories the flow from his work of redemption but the, the redemption that he purchased again that's a an, a, a, an expression that's repeated again and again just to make us realize what Christ was doing in his in, in, in his life his holy life in, in, in the passive suffering he had in that life the active suffering on the cross uh, that, that that was all a purchasing a buying of redemption for the people for his people and it's not just the purchasing of, of forgiveness, but there are so many other things as well as it goes into justification, adoption, sanctification. And, and it keeps it quite brief. It doesn't go into, into other matters as well because uh, you could go to the larger catechism for that to understand more details. But it's enough to know these are the things that we are to believe. And having believed these things, having been saved by these things, the catechism then moves on uh, into its second half. It's not exactly half by any means. From question 39, it starts talking about duty. That there is a duty that we have toward God uh, as our creator, yes, but as our redeemer. So we've gone from God the creator to God the redeemer. And are you re the redeemed? And this is how you are to live a holy life unto the Lord. And so the next, next large block, it's actually, the, I suppose, the biggest block in the whole of the Shorter Catechism, is a discussion of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the moral standards of God. And, and so that they work through the Ten, the ten Commandments uh, and examine them, uh, looking at what, what, the, what the duty is, what, 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 they, uh, what they command and what they forbid. And in certain commandments, especially the second and the fourth commandment, extra questions to understand why is this particular phrase annexed to the commandment? Uh, what does this mean? What does that mean? 
and the fourth commandment having I believe six questions and answers uh, the Sabbath commandment showing that uh, the Westminster Divines had a, had a clear understanding of the importance and necessity of the Christian Sabbath so they continue with all the Ten Commandments and then they move on to other aspects uh, having looked at the commandments of God then they move on in questions 85 to 97 uh, teaching concerning the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion first of all what a sacrament is and again all, you've got to remember there is a backdrop to this that these people have uh, okay there's been the Reformation has now continued for over a hundred years and uh, maybe it's slightly later uh, in Scotland but pretty well a hundred and hundred and so years and yet people still hold on to false truths There's, you still have something called folk theology that the people will think things and share things it's not preached from the pulpit it's not in the confessional standards but they will hold on to things and it's spread between in families it's spread between believer and believer and and and, and so it doesn't re matter in many ways uh, what is taught they'll hold on to certain untruths or errors and so the first thing, you know, what is a sacrament? Is, 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 it, is it something magic? Is it something that you need to be saved? And all these other questions that the larger catechism would go into. But just what is it? What is baptism? What is holy communion? And so having set up something about what are the, what are the, what are the, what are the moral standards that God wants us to live by, uh, it brings in something of the sacraments that Christ has given to his church for the strengthening of the believer and then the last whole section teaches us about prayer because prayer being so essential to the Christian life so uh, the last uh, nine ten questions uh, looking at what prayer is and using the Lord's Prayer as an example going through the uh, the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer to understand each section what can we understand from this and and so we learn a lot about prayer so in our duty as Christians, our moral duty, uh, the duty of partaking of the sacraments, uh, and then our duty as, as, as a prayerful people. And so that's the, that's the catechism, the belief and duty. And so knowledge of the Shorter Catechism for us today is still important, not just because it is part of the Reformed tradition, but because its, it's, necessi it's necessity then is our necessity today still because it, it sharpens our understanding of teaching, of the Christian faith, of, of certain doctrinal truths, not all of them by any means, but, but it, it helps us to understand, in, in, in a nutshell, many of these matters are, are being so carefully worded and, and worded in short, compact phrases that there's an awful lot in there. And the Westminster Divines, as you read their, uh, their work and as you read the Shorter Catechism, you know how precise they are with words. They're very careful with, with, with a word that's being used. And they will call him the Redeemer because they're talking about redemption, and redemption is being brought back. And because it's being brought back, they would use the word purchase. You see how it's, it's very carefully debated over. They debated these matters. Men would come with proposals uh, for a question on, on say, say the, the first commandment or something, and, and they would talk about it, and, one, and another man would, would stand up and say, well, I, I want to say something about before, uh, before me. What does that before me mean? Isn't that something that we need to talk about, that we're always under the all-seeing eye of God? And so these were discussed, they were voted upon, a huge presbytery meeting in many ways. And then the wording was made very precise, and you had these godly men, 
educated and godly men uh, who would work their way through these words to make them to make the words as price, uh, precise and as true as possible in the fewest possible words. So it's to sharpen our understanding, to give us that understanding of, 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 of these doctrinal truths that are included in there. But it's also this, is to reveal the true gospel to us. That's, it's, it's a gospel document as well, because it makes it very clear. It, it begins in, in some ways with the law, with our fall, with our sin. And, and then it brings the Lord Jesus Christ from question 21 onwards. The, the Redeemer, who is this, this wonderful Redeemer and how has he redeemed us? And so it's to reveal the true gospel to us. And because we're learning about doctrine, we're learning about the true gospel, true doctrine, it, it, it protects us from false doctrine. It protects us from error. As, we, as, as we've worked our way in trust in Sabbath school or later on, that we've, that we've learned the catechism and we may half remember things or fully remember things and you'll hear somebody speaking on the television or maybe unfortunately in the pulpit and, and you'll, they'll say something and if it's not just a, 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 a misspeaking, people can misspeak all the time, but if it is something that is to be um, striven against, then you can say, well, no, that, that can't be true because I remember somewhere in the catechism, or maybe you'll say, I know, question 36 says, says this and this, and, and so that's not true, but it does defend us from false doctrine. And, and the essential doctrines are in there of the Reformed faith, of the Trinity, of election, of salvation, and they're all the orthodox uh, doctrines that we have. So they reveal the gospel, they protect us from false doctrine, they instruct us in the moral standards of God, and as I said towards the end, they instruct us in how to pray, in its teaching of the Lord's prayer, and in those various, those various petitions that are included in it. And as I said, it doesn't teach us everything, we would go to the larger catechism to get much more detail. And then the Galatia Catechism itself, although it's 189 question and answers, it, uh, it, it, it generally follows the same order uh, of instruction, and but just goes into far more detail. But we're looking at the Shorter Catechism today. So they did this. They completed it in 1646. The scripture proofs have been added to it. And it was, sent up, it was sent to the Parliament in England, but it was also sent to the Parliament in Scotland. No, no doubt it was sent to the Parliament in Dublin as well, although I, I haven't read that. And what happened in Scotland, because the, Scot the Scots took this very seriously, because the, because the Scottish Kirk was part of uh, the Scottish Constitution, um, and therefore anything that would be part of the, 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 be part of the Scottish Church uh, was to be brought into law. This is what we believe and this is what we would do. And so uh, the Parliament and the Scottish, Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Kirk, they accepted into national law and into church law all the Westminster standards. They put it in law, this is what we believe, this is what is to be taught from the pulpits, this is what the, the, the congregations are encouraged to learn and to use, the ministers are encouraged to, to use it into law. Amazing, if you consider this. You know, th there was no division of church and state in, a, in, a, in an unbiblical way uh, in Scotland in those days. Not to say that it was, that it was easy going at all, because we know it wasn't in those days. And so this was a blessed time, uh, these, these few years, if we, if we, would c uh, we could count from the Kirk of Scots, of Schott's uh, in, uh, in 1630, 
Um, say maybe there were 30 years in total of, 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 the, of the working through of this blessing of God, uh, not only in the Scotland but also in England, uh, as the parliamentarians and as more, more Puritans, um, Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Reformed Anglicans were taking their place and being more and more convinced uh, by, the, by the truth of the Reformation. Of course, this is 100 years later. This is what we call the Second Reformation, uh, a, a time of great Puritan pietism. And so in those 30 years, the great things that the Lord did and even leading to the beheading of Charles I as a traitor to his own people. But unfortunately, in 1660, uh, the Stuarts got back onto the throne. In 1660, uh, Oliver Cromwell having died and his son having not succeeded uh, to take over as protector, Lord Protector of England. Um, and so the people were, were, were tired of uh, Cromwell's son, uh, and they, w they were desirous to have a monarch back again. And so in 1660, uh, the monarch was restored, Charles II. And what happened was, as all the work of the Westminster Assembly as set in law and, and set in the churches was, was, was undone. It was undone in Scotland as well. And the really, in, Scot in England, there was a whole-scale return to the Anglicanism uh, of the pre-Assembly Anglican Church. So before 1642, uh, what they were using the, pr the prayer book of, of Edward the, the, the seventh, sixth, sorry, Edward the sixth, and they were, uh, which, you know, wasn't, wasn't completely bad by any means, but it certainly wasn't as reformed as it could have been. And so they went back to ritual, they went back to rite, they went back to uh, the various aspects of Anglicanism and the reading of prayers and the reading of this and the reading of that, and even the reading of homilies. The, the 24 homilies that the Church of England had, uh, and they would read out a moral lesson from one of those homilies as opposed to preparing and preaching uh, the Word of God. So a wholesale return to Anglicanism, and Scotland did not fare any better. In fact, Scotland fared worse. Because by 1662, you, you, you had laws being brought in to completely, in Scotland, to completely undo many aspects of the Reformation. And it is from 1662 onwards having had the, the National Covenant wiped off the law books, the Solemn League and Covenant wiped off the law books, and all those Christians and ministers and lairds and, and the like who in good conscience thought, I've signed this, this is between me and God. The king cannot annul my covenant with God. But the king thought otherwise. And so began eventually becoming the killing times with the covenanters, uh, with the... the, the the Protestants who, the Presbyterian Protestants who would, who would keep to the covenant eventually were shot on sight uh, until the glorious revolution in 1688. Unfortunately, the 1688, the glorious revolution, and as William of Orange came in and established himself in Scotland also, he did not turn back the clocks. He did not go back to 1647 and to those acts of parliament, and so they were left hanging. They were left hanging in the air for many people who were covenanters. Yes, they were no longer hunted down like dogs, uh, but they, they had no relief of conscience uh, because they were just, they felt overridden. Many other Presbyterians thought, well, the circumstances have changed. Uh, we're now free to teach what's in the confession, although it's no longer in the same position in the land, although I believe it still was on the law books. 
And so, yeah, we have the, the changes and the, the vagaries of, of life. What happened in England? Well, we know that in England, uh, Presbyterianism started to die a death. Puritanism was dying a death. So that we have the, in the 1700s, we have times that are, that are far less uh, great for the gospel, so much so that we needed uh, the Lord to move in, in the great enlightenment in the, in the 1700s and other matters. But what I'm trying to say with that, although there's been declension and although there have been revivals here and there, it has pleased the Lord for that, for that period of, say, 30 years when there were Puritans in power or in influence in the kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland uh, to give us these wonderful documents. And we're talking specifically about the Shorter Catechism. So, so here we are, many hundreds of years later, still able to open the copy and to, uh, and, and to read it and to be taught by it, and personally to be taught by it, but also to be taught in a more formal way and to learn the truths of, of what we too are to believe and how we are to live. So our belief and our duty as Reformed Christians. I mean, we can thank the Lord for preserving uh, these things for us. It is a godly heritage, and it's still ours to know, it's still ours to claim, and it's still ours to make use of. And I, for one, thank God for it. I would ask you any questions, but I think my historical background might not be good enough to withstand that sort of uh, torment. Are there any questions at all? I think that's quite a lot, it's a, it's, but I think it's good, especially for the adults, to get an understanding of uh, there's a background to this. It's not just, just it's, not, it's, not, it's not like a, it's not just a, a small little group of men for a few days coming up with something, but it was fiercely debated for years in the many sittings of the Westminster Assembly. And if there's no questions, then I'll, uh, we'll finish there and move on next time. Uh, with, the confession, uh, with, with, with the Shorter Catechism again. Uh, let us just close in a word of prayer, please. Oh God, we do give thee thanks for uh, all of thy many blessings towards us. And Lord, we thank thee for the Westminster Standards and the work of the divines in that time. Lord, men that have been moved by thee who made covenant with thee, Lord, that the true gospel, the true Christ, true theology would be known and taught. Uh, Lord, that it would be owned by the churches of England, of Scotland, of Ireland. Lord, that it would glorify Thee in these truths and make known to the people the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Wonderful things that happened by Thy grace, the gifts of Christ to the church, as we know from Ephesians. And we thank Thee for these, these gifts scattered to men. And ultimately, of course, everything that's said in these catechisms and confessions is taken from the Scriptures. Lord, they do not add to the Scriptures, they do not take away from it, but they merely describe what is in the Scriptures. And we come, therefore, to give Thee thanks, uh, not only for the inspiration, but also for Thy divine preservation of the Scriptures, that even today we have the true and full Word of God, the full counsel of God, Lord, in our own language, in a faithful translation, preserved by Thee, O God. And we do, we do thank Thee, Lord, for these many Reformation blessings and attainments. 
Lord, that even today that we're making full use of and we may humbly bow before thee and say, God, thou art good, thou art merciful to thy people, thou art gracious, we deserve nothing, but Lord, thou art worthy of all praise and glory and thanksgiving. And we return our thanks even now at the end of this adult Bible class for all thy blessings, even through the Westminster Assembly. Lord, may these truths be buried deep in our hearts. May they bear fruit, Lord, as we know Christ and as we live for Christ. For we pray this in his blessed and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention and your time. Sorry, Eddie, I didn't see you down there. <laughs>